We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. My name is Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta, and today I'm excited to introduce to you Aaron Slossberg of Where There Be Dragons. Aaron's got a great story to tell about his own experience with travel, and then we'll hear a little bit about the dragons. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. As those of you who've been with us for a little while know, we had a guest on earlier, Alden Forbes, who was an alum from Where There Be Dragons. And she had great experience, which really made me want to reach out and learn more about the program and about the people behind it. Before we get into the dragons itself, can you tell us a little bit about what got you into working with these international programs? Yeah, absolutely. I went to school at UCLA, and when I was there, they had a kind of experiential education outdoor wilderness program. And so I got involved as a student guiding group to do backpacking trips, rock climbing, kayaking, kind of shorter length, but more like weekend to one one week length. And I loved working with groups. So even as a student working with my peers, it was really fulfilling in a way that I had an experience in the classroom setting of that type of kind of holistic experience of, of education in out, an out-of-classroom setting and really letting the place be the teacher. So that was kind of my first exposure, really, to experiential education. And then I studied abroad in college, too. So I studied abroad in, in Spain, uh, and I, I learned Spanish. And then I went to Ecuador and spent a few months there. Uh, and then after college, I, my first job was in Guatemala. And so I moved to Guatemala, and I was there for about half a year, which is a whole other story that we can get into about my first job there. But I, I wanted to keep traveling, and I wanted to do that and kind of combine that, that passion that I found for experiential education. And so someone actually recommended Dragons and as a way to, to kind of merge those two interests. And uh, I applied because I had, had been living in Guatemala, and they, they run programs there. And so my first, my first program was in 2008 in Guatemala, and it was a six-week course with 12 high school students. That's so cool. I mean, it's it really, like you said, you followed your passion and tried to figure out how to integrate those two things. And a lot of people wonder how to make that happen. Now, of course, you cued us a little bit. What exactly happened in Guatemala? Well, I, so I was living in Los Angeles when I was in college and started to look for, for jobs. And I was looking kind of at international jobs. And someone had actually forwarded this job posting. I can't remember if it was on Craigslist or what job form it was on for a teaching position in Guatemala City. And I thought, well, that'd be a great way to, to be kind of in an immersive environment and to teach. And I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I, at that time, I wanted to be a professor. So it felt like a relevant to what my interests were. And so I applied and was interviewed and everything was, was seemed kind of normal. And then I, I showed up at the airport in Guatemala and I spoke Spanish at the time. And so the woman who picked me up, she was Korean and didn't speak any Spanish or English, just Korean. And she just started speaking to me in Korean. And, you know, I was kind of taken aback because here I am landing in Guatemala, thinking I'm going to use my Spanish, and all of a sudden she only speaks Korean. I said, okay, that's fine. And I show up for my first day at work, and it was a 100% Korean school with all Korean students. Uh, most of them actually didn't speak Spanish, 
And so their native tongue was Korean, and then they spoke English as well. And so that was the kind of first step of, of realizing that there was this whole subculture in Guatemala of a Korean expat community living there. And they were there for, for work reasons. They worked a lot in like the textile industry. And so that was, I, was, I ended up working for this, the Korean Academy in Guatemala was my first job after college. Wow. Well, there's an un unusual approach to it. I mean, a lot of people go do things like Teach for America or, you know, but there at least you know you're going to be speaking English and maybe some Spanish, but wow. So Korean. So what did, I mean, how did that shape your experience in terms of really your experience in Guatemala? Because you were expecting it to be sort of a Spanish or, or, or Hispanic, but, but Guatemala, real Guatemala experience, did you end up having to find other ways to experience sort of what you had anticipated or the, the native culture of uh, Guatemala? Yeah, it, it's an, it was an interesting kind of evolution for me in my expectations and what the reality was on the ground. And it ended up being a really informative experience in a lot of ways because I well, was first really curious how, how and why this large community of about 15,000 Koreans had come to Guatemala and had and and were pretty well established there, and so that kind of became an, a personal investigative question for me. And it turns out that there's that actually led to what I was researching in graduate school. I went back for economic history and actually looked at how labor supply chains were outsourced, and this was kind of part of that story. So it was kind of my original exposure to that was very much in person, but in terms of immersing myself more in Guatemalan culture and kind of learning more about the place of, of people that were actually from there and not the expat community of the Korean expat community. I had an apartment and I just kind of put myself out there to start making friends. So I played soccer and would go to soccer pickup matches. I play music. So I would started trying to find people to, to jam with. And uh, I, you know, I, I love that. I had a great, great experience, but I definitely had to to seek that out a little bit more as someone that was in my early 20s and trying to kind of have an immersive experience on my own. Well, absolutely. And I think that there's actually an incredible value to that because as native English speakers, it's often very hard to immerse yourself in another culture and to learn and immerse yourself in another language because everybody wants to speak English with you. And if you're in a place where they only speak Korean, then you really are, you know, Spanish is your unifying language you know, then then you can go at, back into the Guatemalan community and use that Spanish. I would think that that probably really enforced your ability to uh, immerse yourself in the language. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I knew pretty, from my study abroad experience in Spain, and I had a great experience, but, it, you know, when I, when I was there, I studied in Salamanca and Sevilla, and they're both very popular destinations for American students to study abroad. And so you really have to be intentional in terms of avoiding other Americans if you want to have a real immersion experience. And, I, you know, I think I was 19 or 20 years old and, and I was meeting friends and, and it was enjoying, you know, kind of connecting with people. And obviously, if you share a language, it's a lot easier to connect right off the bat. And, and so I think this experience, having been informed by not having as much immersion as I maybe would have liked. I was really kind of mindful of saying, I don't, I don't really want to interact with the expat community here, even though there, there is that scene in Guatemala as there is kind of everywhere. So I tried to just kind of exclusively hang out with Guatemalan friends as much as possible. 
how does that inform the way that you 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 do your work with where there be dragons when you when you were going out with students did you try to help them extract that type of experience and i suppose actually we should back up a little bit because maybe folks don't know that much about what where there be dragons is can you just give a little little blurb on sort of what the work is that you guys are doing there yeah absolutely so we run educational travel programs that are really immersive and focus on cross cultural experiences so Our real mission is to connect students and participants of different ages in a a very sincere way with other places. And so we do that by trying to, as much as possible, push them beyond the kind of well-trodden tourist path, which we know when you travel to another place, there's kind of all of these signposts as a foreigner that are pointing you towards the familiar, whether that's food-wise or lodging-wise or, you know, whatever those destinations are. So we try to kind of break out of that path with our students and empower them with the skills to travel as a kind of independent, engaged traveler in the future. And so that's kind of one of our missions is both the, the intercultural piece of learning about a new place, but also the empowerment of feeling the confidence to, to kind of create your own journey on, on future, you know, future trips. So. Awesome. So sorry, I sort of had to do a little circle back there, but I just wanted to make sure we didn't hop over that and then go right into how uh, yeah, how your experience actually fed into that. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I love the idea of the program. And there are so many programs that do just sort of, I mean, it's almost like a, a glorified vacation where mm-hmm. it sounds from, from what Alden had explained to me and what I've read about Where There Be Dragons, it seems like that, that intent and that, uh, that really mindful interaction and intention to integrate and to really authentically experience the culture, but also not only just take that away as from the experience, but the experience of taking away, I can do this and I know how mm-hmm. to to engage with other cultures respectfully and but also to really, you know, it's eating those foods that are unfamiliar. It's, mm-hmm. you know, being in those environments that feel a little bit uncomfortable and getting comfortable in your uncomfortable space. Can you, Absolutely. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how your previous experiences led into the way that you lead in uh, For Where There Be Dragons? Yeah, I think it's an interesting point of reflection for me because I, a lot of it starts, I think, with role modeling from my family. And when I look at my parents, not just, we sometimes think that travel has to happen overseas or, or far away, but I think we always can, we can be traveling in our our own communities at home, even if that's just going out to a new restaurant or talking to strangers on the street, which is harder to do right now in, in this social distancing world that we're living in. But, you know, I think my family, they were always interacting with strangers in a really interested, cu- genuinely curious way. So, I mean, sometimes to the annoyance of my brother and I, because we always joke that we could never go to a restaurant without them becoming best friends with the with the server by the end of the meal and like hearing their life story. And and so I think that way of just talking to new people and and being genuinely interested in their story and where they're coming from has really informed my style as a teacher or a facilitator on these programs of trying to get students to to find that learning from the people around us. And we often think about expertise in terms of credentials as like it's the professor or the person that holds this post. That's the person that has the knowledge. And really, when you're traveling, it's this unique opportunity 
to connect to the person that's selling tea on the side of the road, to, you know, to, to at, at the, the restaurant, to the person that's, that's serving the food, to hear their story, to talk about what are the economics of the restaurant, how is this working, how did you get into this, and, and that's going to be some of the, the most profound learning that they, that they have. And so you know, I think having that example of talking and hearing people's story in these informal settings have really informed the way that, that I approach in terms of the teacher, but it, it just aligned very naturally with Dragon's own kind of pedagogy too. So mm-hmm. I love that. And I, I think that's a, such a wise way to, to go about the world. Just be curious and be, be open to, to learning sort of what's the bigger story of where people come from. And like you were saying with the Koreans, understanding, you know, sort of the whole political geography and, and economics of why are there so many Koreans there and sort of the story of how they got there rather than just, oh my goodness, I'm at a Korean school. What do I do in the middle of Guatemala? <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's fascinating. And I think that it's a great lesson to be learned, especially for travelers, because often we sort of put together our itinerary and, and it's like, okay, I want to see this site. I want to see this site. I want to see this site. And you forget about all the amazing little experiences in between, which sometimes are the most magical parts that we take home from our experience, and they may not have been photographed. They're the pieces that we keep in our memories. Are Mm. there any of those that particularly in your journeys have really stood out of those magical moments, whether it's a conversation with a server or whatever? Is Is there a particular story that stands out to you of one of those magical connections that was unexpected? So many. I mean, I think that those are some of the most meaningful moments in my life, even if they're they're fleeting and it's just one thing to look back on or if they've become a relationship that has kind of persevered through years of kind of a a connection that was unexpected with someone you know something that comes up for me when you were asking that question was thinking to indonesia where i've been going to indonesia for over 10 years now and i studied indonesian in grad school and so when I was first starting to learn the language, I was with the Dragons group and it was our first ever program there. And so I helped set up our first program there. And I've been studying Indonesian at that point for about two years, but still I would say both kind of intermediate level, kind of like a, maybe like a elementary school or middle school level of the language. And we were staying in this place in southeastern Sulawesi, a really remote community and uh, with an ethnic group called the Bajau group or the Orang Sama. And they are traditionally sea nomads. And so this homestead community is completely disconnected from the land. It's, mm-hmm. it's on stilts in these little bamboo huts. For the, the community was entirely nomadic for, for centuries. And then they kind of had settled more in this one spot. And so I was also in a homestay with our students. And so, you know, we're having an experience as long, alongside our students, which is something I think is quite unique is to have your teachers also having an experience alongside you. It's not like a separate thing. We can't really pull ourselves out of the experience. And my homestay father said, tonight, we're going to go fishing. I said, okay, okay, what does that mean tonight? And he's like, I'll wake you up. And so I get up and I look at my clock and it's 2 a.m. And we go in his canoe and it had this little diesel engine and we motor out for probably about three or four hours. And we're out in the middle of the ocean. And then he just cuts the engine. And Indonesian was not his first language. And so his Indonesian was probably about the same as mine in terms of where we were at with our with our language facility. 
And we just had this conversation about life, about like really profound stuff about God and politics and in the most simple terms imaginable. And it was such a wonderful experience to be floating in the middle of the ocean with this person from such a different background than, than me and to be talking about these deep life issues kind of on this level playing field of, you know, not having all of those crutches that I rely on in my personality of trying to be articulate or express myself in this or that way. And it just felt like this one of the most memorable conversations I've ever had in my life, even though it was so simple. And then the sun came up. And as soon as the sun came up over the horizon, he started pulling fish out of the ocean. <laughs> so it was just this incredible moment for me and was totally unexpected, you know, was something that I just said yes to. And I had no idea uh, what to expect in that moment. So I think, you know, that's something that kind of stands out. Yeah, well, that sounds magic, absolutely magical. And and uh, do you stay in touch with him, or is that just one of those memories that you know, I, I do? Have? And I actually took my parents back there about a year ago. So in December 2019, I took my mom and my dad to Indonesia, and I took them to that village. It's really hard to get to, and it's kind of an arduous journey. And it was incredible because I had my birthday there. My birthday's in December, and uh, it was kind of my Indonesian family, quote unquote, of people. I mean, I've been in touch with them now for almost 10 years and my parents. And it was the most special birthday I think I've ever had. It was really magical to to share that sitting on the floor, you know, just kind of laughing and translating for my parents. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That sounds so wonderful. And I can just, you, you describe it so beautifully. I can totally envision it. One of the things that I think a lot of people experience, and I'm curious, you mentioned a lot of the whole thing of when you go to another country, you try not to hang out with other expats so that you get the mm-hmm. more real, authentic experience. But the other end of that is coming home. I've found that the, a lot of the conversation, and even the conversation I had with Alden, was that you tend to gravitate towards other people who have had international experiences. So former expats or current expats who are not native to your own culture. Do you find that you do that or you're, I guess, in, in Santa Cruz, I believe, so mm-hmm. which is more sort of closer to your original home and there's the surfer community and, and that. But do you find that you're more comfortable in that in the conversation in that expat community or is it easier for you to repatriate and just be a California, native Californian? It's an interesting question because I think in some ways the answer is Yes, I feel more comfortable with people that have had similar experiences because there's that natural affinity there and there's so much kind of unspoken understanding that passes between you. But then in other ways, there's kind of a sacredness to those experiences. And sometimes travelers, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I know I've certainly experienced travelers can be in this kind of almost comparative mindset of you know, how remote my experience was or where this was. And you can kind of almost get into this interesting place of swapping stories that can, in some ways, actually pull you away from where you are and your surroundings. And so I both enjoy stepping into those, those spaces, but also enjoy talking to people that, that haven't, haven't had those kind of travel experiences and connecting in different ways of being here. And I know for our students, 
we talk a lot about transference, which is this process of how do you transfer your experience from abroad to back home and do that in a way that actually informs your life rather than becoming this kind of distant, dreamlike state of your past. How do you keep that alive? And that's kind of a perpetual challenge for all of us. And I think we try to provide a bit more facilitation and mentorship around that. But I know for me, I wish I had more of that process coming back from some of my own personal like life experiences to have someone helping me to, to process that and uh, integrate it into the rest of my life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can think of in, you know, multiple times where particularly when in my early experiences of studying abroad and working abroad there, without that transference, it's sort of like, who am I now in this? What's what used to be familiar feels strange. And yet there's that comfort in particularly, you know, when you're in a, in an immersive environment where you're speaking a second language or a third language and and then you come back to your native language and you realize people get my humor. They get my, you know, <laughs> they, they get all the subtle things that I can actually be sarcastic again and people get it, you know, <laughs> little things like that. They're that, laughing with me, not at me. <laughs> exactly. And then it's like, oh, that feels kind of good. You know, <laughs> you feel like your, your true personality can come out. And there, mm. there's sort of these funny little adjustments that there's a beautiful part of being a stranger, but there's also a beautiful part of being familiar and and sort of finding that that balance there. And it sounds like you guys work a lot with helping people find that balance. So that's a yeah. great tool. You know, absolutely. And I think one thing, I've kind of mentioned this a little bit in the story about Indonesia, but there's something also that is so empowering of connecting with people on this level where you don't have those normal kind of ways of articulating yourself, the humor, the sarcasm, the the kind of wittiness that I think a lot of us have in our native tongue. And so a lot of our students thing that they're most anxious about is almost always a homestay because they do individual homestays with families. And so you can imagine that that could be very anxiety producing what it's going to be like. And for most of our students, they're not anywhere near fluent in the language or they may be are, are just learning it or, or, or really don't have any background in the language. So how do you communicate? And it's what we hear from students again and again is the same thing, which is that I couldn't believe how powerful of a connection I made, even without language, just communicating with laughter and smiles and games and gestures. And so there's this, you realize that the human connection really transcends language in these ways. And then to come back in and both have that realization of how we can connect without language and then to have language, you know, back home at your disposal too, it's almost like you're like a superhero where you're like, wow, I can form connections so well now <laughs> because I was doing it without language. And now I like have this whole nother tool at my disposal. Absolutely. I love the way you describe that. It's so true. It does feel like a superpower. All of a sudden it's like, oh, look at that. I can do both. I'm curious. So one of the things we talked about a little bit in the green room, and after doing a little bit of research on what you guys are doing, a lot of people hear about gap year programs, or there's this expectation that, and actually, a lot of people like myself who have, you know, young adults as kids who are now looking at programs like this, and you think that we're all of us as parents are saying, Oh, well, you know, I want my kids life right now. Well, it sounds like you guys have added some great adult programs, too. And I'm curious about how the, the decision to do that and sort of what kind of, you know, what's the difference between doing an adult program where maybe we're a little more situated in what our needs or what we're perceived needs are, 
uh, for travel and for an immersive experience? Yeah, we started doing adult programs exactly because of that desire that was expressed by parents of, you know, so many parents, their students would come home and be sharing these incredible stories. And they'd call us and say, why can't I have this experience too? When are you going to offer this for us? And, you know, a lot of about working with this age range of adolescents of kind of 15 to 20 is really where the majority of our students are, is it's a rite of passage. You're coming into adulthood. And so you're asking big questions about both your identity, but also your place in the world. And so for our adult programs too, we just, it's an acknowledgement that we're always going through these rites of passage in different times, whether that be in your 30s or your 50s or wherever you are in your life. Uh, you know, people are, they're figuring out changing careers or kids going off to college or these different rites of passage that we're all experiencing. And so to have, have a facilitated experience and another place that gives you that perspective to step away from those things, those pressures and kind of that immediate, the immediacy of all of those issues that are surrounding us can be really empowering in the same fundamental core questions of our identity and our place in the world. And so we, that's what we started to do just a few years ago, three or four years ago, we started offering adult programs. And I worked with a group in Indonesia for a two-week program with 12 adults. And I was actually the youngest person <laughs> on, on the group. And I think one of the biggest differences for me as a facilitator on that program was that with our younger population, there's a, so much concern and regard for for the social dynamic within the group and kind of still figuring out those social connections that this is just a lot, I think, bigger in our in their the front of their minds. And for adults, they're coming in very well established, very secure in kind of their life. They often have families already. They have careers. They've made mistakes and they've recovered from it. They have more perspective. And so I think for me, I could focus more on the interactions externally with the country because the internal process was that they were just at a different place internally. So that was kind of one of the, the bigger differences I, I noticed. And I loved it. And also the feedback that we've got from all of our adult travelers has been phenomenal. I think actually even better than we, we ex expected in terms of what we're offering resonating with a, with a need and desire that's out there. That was, I think it's been really rewarding to see that there's that resonance. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And I think that it's something that a lot of people should consider if they've never sort of dared is the wrong word, but have felt a hesitance to, to have that kind of integrative experience to do it in a guided format with a program, you know, whether, where, where they be dragons or whether, it, you know, I know that, um, oh, what's the one that builds houses? abroad. Um, Habit, Habitat, Habitat for, Human for Humanity. Yeah, Habitat for Humanity. I know a lot of families have talked about doing group trips. Let's go build a house together and actually do something mm -hmm. that's purposeful. Do you have any trips that are focused on purpose-based efforts, or are they mostly for the experiential piece? For uh, adult travelers or for students? Either one. Or, I'm or, thinking, you know, in some organizations do things like where, you know, you're building solar panels or you're building mm -hmm. huts and things like that or, or wells. Yeah. So for all of our programs are very comprehensive in terms of we don't have a program that is specifically, you know, building a house or is focused on one purpose. So for us, the, the service portion or the project portion of a program it's all integrated into our educational curriculum. So we often talk about the difference between doing a service project versus learning service. And mm -hmm. we kind of really shift to this learning service paradigm, which is that 
the reality is, is whether you're an adult or a student traveling with us, you're making an investment, and you're making an investment in the plane ticket and the program fees and all of this, all the time and energy, all of those things you're investing in going to this place. And the reality is, is that when we actually look at the, the kind of financial side of that investment, the person that's going to benefit most from the experience is likely going to be the traveler. And so let's be honest about that. And while we want to help and be involved and engage where there's needs, and that's kind of, we really start from this need-based assessment of a community-identified need and to look in how we can be beneficial or helpful in a community, but really with the, the humility to know that we're not there to solve the problem. And we're not coming in with this mindset of we're here to give something to you or we're here to help you with this because we're actually there to learn. And so first and foremost, our primary goal with all of our travelers is to learn about the community and the places that we're visiting, but then also to learn about ourselves and what are the passions and the skill sets that we have that can benefit others beyond the scope of the program. And so the idea of learning service is that it's not just about this project. It's about informing the choices and, and the paths that we're walking in our lives back home. And so for a lot of us, that might mean coming back home and realizing, wow, this is this environmental issue or this education issue I'm really passionate about. And I want to see how I can engage with this back home, too. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I think it, it really speaks to the power of being a global citizen and having that perspective. And and so, you know, really empowering global citizens, it doesn't matter where you put your passion into practice, because you're looking at it from a systems perspective. That's really cool. I wanted to ask you about, um, because currently we're, we're, I don't know whether this is going to be post shelter in place when this launches or not, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about the remote work piece, because that, uh, regardless of whether we're shelter in place or whether our teams are just dispersed, I mean, your teams are all over the world. So what are some of the things that you do or you feel are really important in order to keep that continuity and sort of fluidity in your teams and in the, your ability to do your work as a remote worker? It's a it's a good question, and it's also something that I think we're always learning about: is how do you maintain a sense of camaraderie and shared mission when you're not in the same room physically with another person? And I think for us, one of the things that I've realized personally, and that our organization has realized, is that you can't dismiss or skip over the human connection. And whenever we have meetings always starting with a kind of a place to establish some kind of human connection and rapport. Because if you don't do that, it's really easy to dismiss that on any individual meeting to say, oh, it's not that important. We're strapped for time, whatever it is. But then you realize that that has a cumulative distancing effect. And so the more that we do that and we kind of dismiss the importance of a personal check-in or how just kind of hearing how someone else is doing before diving into whatever the, the kind of issue at hand is, that over time, that results in us feeling distance from that person and then being less likely to really have effective collaboration because you're no longer thinking in a kind of a team mindset, but you're more like these individual contributors that are kind of tackling different parts of the problem, but not really, you're losing that kind of holistic shared effort. So in the role that I have at Dragons Now, that's kind of something that I try to embody in my work is maintaining those personal relationships and realizing that all the professional is, can, you can never really fully separate those two things. 
Do you use a lot of technology, both on you know on the ground or and um, obviously when you have your remote teams, you probably use some technology to connect for meetings and whatnot. But do the students have access to technology? Are they using those for connecting or blogging or for what's the piece there that might help you know send messages home or connect to the team? Yeah, it's so we our programs are unplugged in the sense that we don't allow students to have Wi-Fi smartphone devices with them. And that's a really intentional decision that we've made because what we have found is that for so many students, they're so immersed in technology and so connected you know, through social media and digital platforms that it can really detract actually from the presence of, of being in a homestay or being in a community or being with a group because you're still tapped into that kind of whole network back home. And so when I say we're unplugged, it, it doesn't mean that we don't allow them to communicate back home or to write emails or to have windows for communication. It just means that we discourage students from having those in the, physically with them all the time. And so that we want it to be a mindful choice, just that, that our interactions with technology are intentional and not something that we're kind of perpetuating out of just out of habit. We do have a Dragon's, we call it the Yak Board, but it's a place for students to post about their experiences from the field. It's kind of essentially a blog. And so that's really a wonderful way for students to share out what, what they've been experiencing. And some students have their own personal blogs that they update and things like that. The reality is, is that a lot of the places we travel, the access to internet and technology is, it can also be limited. So that's, that can be a challenge too. But Every few days, I'd say on most of our programs, you know, every three to four days, students will have some connectivity point. That speaks so much to the work that I do with digital well-being and that I think that there's a lot of value in having a conscious relationship and a conscious, you know, making it a, a conscious connection when you need it, as opposed to having it being ever present, especially when you're experiencing something so new and so immersive. Pleased to hear that that your approach is is that because I've certainly been taught on programs and been on programs where people are still immersed in their devices and they miss half of the experience. So, Yeah, and there's so much potential in technology too. So by no means do, I mean, we recognize that fully and we've had students do incredible photojournalism projects and documentary mm -hmm. projects and, you know, all kinds of multimedia ways of engaging with communities. But I think one of the things that we have found is that the maintenance of a social a digital identity is exhausting. And there's a lot of pressure on that. And especially for, for all of us, this, this idea of, of posting and up, keeping people updated and curating this digital profile, it can really detract from that kind of self-examination and introspection process that is a huge opportunity of traveling. So, yeah. Well, and just being, yeah. So yeah. I want to make sure before we wrap up, I want to make sure people know where to find uh, more information around where there be dragons and you, if they want to connect to hear more about uh, your work, where's the best place for them to find you? Definitely go into our website. I mean, I think that's the kind of one-stop shop. It's just wherethereBedragons.com. And uh, if anyone has any questions, you can also just reach out to me and my email is just Aaron, A-A-R-O-N at wherethebedragons.com. Always happy to, to be in touch and, and help anyone with questions. Great. Well, we'll make sure that we put you guys in the, the resource list as well. So people, you don't have to dig around on the, the website, but it will be in the show notes. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Erin. It was a pleasure to uh, to meet you finally and to hear a little bit more about your journey as well. Likewise. Thanks so much. I enjoyed the conversation and appreciate having the time together. No problem. Well, and thank you, Global Nomads, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you here. We appreciate you taking the time to stop and listen and enjoy the ride. And until next time, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't had a chance to yet, and share with your friends. Till next time, bye-bye for now.